Chapter Eleven of Sister Simon's Murder Case by Margaret Ann Hubbard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Eleven. The morning at twenty to seven was ideal summer. Hurrying across the river bridge, Lizette was only half conscious of the clean air and the quiet. She was thinking, as she had been doing all night, of Sister Simon and of Jenny. The police had not called and their silence spoke loudly that no trace had been found of the missing girl. Her thoughts concerning Sister Simon were not so well defined. She should have understood the nun's adherence to duty, for very often she was overscrupulous herself. But when the rules hurt you, that's when they should be relaxed, not for anyone else, only for you. And because the sister hadn't made an exception for her, Lizette was bitterly resentful. That was most unfair. Still, when you remember that the exception might have saved Danny's life. Lizette looked up abruptly from the pavement, for she was not going around that narrow, exasperating little racetrack again. Main Street was unnatural without its crowd of vacationers. The mind-reader's tent on the portico of the Nickelodeon Palace was fastened down. Down at the docks, the excursion boats lay with their awnings furled and chairs tipped upside down on the decks. A solitary dog barked among the trailers. A few trucks roared by. Pigeons walked cooing and nodding after yesterday's popcorn in the gutters. In the shooting gallery, wide open to the street, a colored boy was doing a lackadaisical job of sweeping. Farther along, a girl with her head tied up in a bandana was giving a swish or two to the windows of the laundrette. Oh, hi, the girl said as Lizette approached. Hi, Lizette replied, wondering at the quick friendliness. You're up early. The guy I work for, he runs you day and night. The girl drew the squeegee down the window and wiped the blade. Did your friend have a good time last night? Wonderful, Lizette said without thinking. I was hoping she would. She sure looked elegant. Lizette stopped, her heart doing sudden flip-flops. What friend? Gosh, I don't know her name. The Blondie. You and her were both on duty in that do-it-yourself unit when I was in for x-rays last spring. Always together, you two. And you saw her last night? Here? The girl nodded. She said she was going out on a date. What on earth was she doing in the laundrette? She come for the suitcase. The woman sent her. The woman sent her? Well, I don't know. I guess she said the woman couldn't come. I guess that was it. Anyways, she wanted the suitcase, so I give it to her. What did it look like? kind of paper. Real light. The girl leaned on the handle of the squeegee. Hey, was it hers all the time? Was she eloping with some guy? I really don't know. Listen, you all right? You look terrible. No, I... I'm just surprised. I never thought of her eloping. Lizette hardly knew what she was saying. She must get to a telephone, call Wakely. Did she say where she was going? What's the good of running away if you tell everybody? That's right. And she was in a hurry, I suppose. Oh, sure. Nervous, too. I sure hope the guy is good to her. He'd better be. The terrible conviction that the guy was not being good to Jenny started Lizette on a run up the hill toward Waddy's mortuary. The girl called after her, but she only waved her hand. She had to reach Ted before he could leave for his date with her. He would know what to do. Her running steps carried her up the green matting and onto the welcome mat. Panting, she pressed the bell. 
Soft chimes sounded inside. She waited through an impatient minute. Then, since the door remained closed, she tried the knob. Afterwards, she would remember that the latch was not quite caught. The door opened noiselessly. The hall was empty. Sunshine streamed through the windows of what was apparently a drawing room and touched the first of the nice gray steps leading upstairs. Ted, Lizette inquired softly. No answer. Judging from the very deep silence, she was the only living soul in the entire building. The only living soul. Ted, she called, but it was barely a whisper. She could step back to the porch and keep pressing the bell until someone came. But ahead, tucked in behind the stairwell, was a small doorway. The door stood open, showing light within the little room. Probably an office. Lizette went forward, her steps dropping noiselessly on the gray carpet. She came into the little open door and stopped. Taking up most of the space was a casket, bronze finished, lined with pale pink. In the casket, Danny lay. Ted had described her well. You couldn't believe looking at her, that she had died by violence. Why, she's beautiful, Lizette thought, and moved a little farther into the room. Several chairs had been placed facing the casket. There was a red plush prédu, and at the foot of the casket on a pedestal was a marvelous pink cyclamen, in full bloom. Together, these things took up most of the space. But not all of it. On the carpet, between the chairs and the dark drapery of the casket truck, lay a man, face down, his gray curls partly hidden by the velvet folds. He was very still. Beside him a red stain had spread in an ugly blot. Somebody began to scream, long, piercing screams that hurt Lizette's head. She didn't realize that they were her own until Ted rushed in, said something, and caught her to him. She began to cry then, hysterically, and she clung to him until he picked her up and carried her out into the big room where the sunshine was. All right now, take it easy, honey, take it easy, he kept saying, but his voice shook. He put her into a big chair and began to rub her hands. Liz, darling, maybe there's something I can do for him. Maybe he isn't. Calm down, will you, honey, so I can go? Go where? Just to the phone. I've got to call a doctor. I'll be right here in the hall. Wakely, get Wakely. Okay, I'll call them both. Lizette felt Ted pat her hastily on the head and collapse sobbing against the chair arm. Mr. Waddy was dead, like Jim MacArthur and Elizabeth and Danny Greer. And Jenny? Oh, no, no, no. Lizette sobbed into the armchair. Out in the hall, she could hear Ted talking frantically to Wakely. Today, tomorrow, someday the same kind of call would be made concerning Jenny because the man with the gruff voice had lured her away. He had told her to pick up the suitcase of the laundrette. It was a dangerous mission. And now Jenny was missing in the place of her dearest friend, Lizette. I believe, Sister Simon said, tapping the scrapbook in her lap, I firmly believe that the whole thing dates back to here. Henry Waddy was the link, you see. His death proves it. Lizette shook her head slowly. The nun had sent for her and Diane, and the three of them sat on the screen porch of the octagon house. They were going to sift back through what they knew for facts that would fit together. Sister Simon had said, through what was in the scrapbook and what Lizette had seen of Danny on the waterfront, and all that Diane remembered of her aunt. 
Somewhere there must be an answer to this terrible puzzle. But the bees were making lazy attempts to draw honey from the blossoms of the moonseed vine, and their humming was like a sedative to Lizette. How does Mr. Waddy's death prove anything, sister? she asked, and her voice sounded far away, as it did in dreams. Someone must have been desperately afraid of what he might tell. Something about Aunt Danny? Diane asked incredulously. Sister, if you think, you just don't understand what she was like. Nothing personal, dear, but I'm absolutely convinced that she and Henry Waddy were killed for the same reason, because of something they knew. But what could it be? Diane was like a peevish child, pale and on the verge of tears. We're all going to be like that, Lizette thought, if we don't stumble out of this quagmire pretty soon. They're all gone now, Sister Simon said, all the men on the hunting trip, so we have to find another link, if we can. Think hard, dear. Was there any friend, man or woman, about your aunt's age, who might have known her through the past twenty years? Nobody, sister. Nobody except Mr. Barron. The lumberman? Vince Barron? Lizette asked. But he's, I mean... He's a millionaire several times over, I know, and Aunt Danny was poor as a church mouse. But he was her friend. He even came to see us quite regularly when I was small. But not lately? How could I know that, Liz? I've been here at school. I wonder, the sister says slowly, I just wonder if he knows the same thing, whatever it might be, that Mr. Waddy knew, and Danny. Diane looked at her with wide eyes, started to speak, then suddenly jumped up and ran down the steps and the way across the lawn. The two who remained on the porch watched her until she disappeared around a lilac bush. Sister, Lizette said after a moment, Mr. Barron was a friend of Henry Waddy's. Ted mentioned him. What a strange sort of man he is. If he knows whatever this is, he could be the next victim. Yes, or the murderer. A bee worrying the last drop of nectar out of a moonseed blossom made a very loud buzzing. It seemed the most important thing in the world to Lizette that she wait until he had buzzed on to the next flower. It took him a long time to finish. I'd like to go to see Mr. Barron, she said then. I'd find out very casually where he was last night, because if he has an alibi, so he couldn't possibly have had anything to do with Jenny's disappearance, or with Mr. Waddy's death, then he isn't the murderer, and he deserves a warning. Sister Simon moved, easing herself in the chair. He has an office, doesn't he? Somewhere in town? Straight over from the bank. You can see it going to Waddy's. Well, then go in daylight, Lizette. The girl smiled. I'll be a student writing a term paper on the lumber industry, sister. That ought to open him up. From what I've heard, it's been his whole life. Don't mention Danny Greer, or Virginia. I won't unless he does. Are you sure you want to do this, Lizette? You look so tired. I'll rest when I get back. But there would be no rest for her until Jenny was found. Hurrying back to her room, changing her dress, giving her hat a dash of the comb, Lizette wondered how to begin her interview. A write-up for the school paper, perhaps that would be better. Still, how could she wind around to the vital question of where were you last night, Mr. Barron? When she climbed the steps to the dismally bare house, Lizette was as fluttery as she had been on her first day in surgery. 
On the glass of the door, in large gold letters, was the name Baron Timberlands Incorporated. Baron the Millionaire, the little store clerk Danny Greer, gentle Mr. Waddy, and young Jenny from the backwoods. How in the world could they all be linked together? And was the Count three dead and one to go? Lizette grasped the door latch and pushed. The hall was dim after the brilliant sunshine, but no amount of light could have made it cheerful. The walls were papered in brown oatmeal, and in the corner was an ancient umbrella stand with a clouded mirror. A worn rubber runner led to a narrow stairs, going up into more dimness. Nearest Lizette was a door with a bevel glass bearing the name V.W. Barron. There was darkness behind it. While she hesitated, wondering whether to knock, a door opened down the hall, seemed to be on the point of closing again, then swung barely wide enough to let a woman through. She was stocky and middle-aged, and she looked Lizette up and down, perhaps not with hostility, but definitely taking her measure. "'Good afternoon,' she said. She had a good voice, and she was all competence, her hair cut like a man's, her blouse plain and very clean, and her shoes flat-heeled. Lizette felt frivolous in contrast. Mentally she stammered over the possible beginnings she had rehearsed on the way, and found none of them adequate. Directness will be the best possible line with this person. "'I'd like to see Mr. Barron,' she said, if he isn't busy. "'Mr. Barron has not come in yet.' "'Oh.' The only thing to do now was to leave, or else state her business bluntly. "'I'm Lizette Carter, a student nurse at St. Matthew's. Diane MacArthur is one of my friends.' She paused, then since the woman showed no reaction, she added, Danny Greer was Diane's aunt. I see. It came casually enough, yet something changed in the woman's demeanor. She had not been smiling before, but now she looked as if she had never had smiled in her life. And why did you wish to see Mr. Barron? Take the plunge, Lizette decided. Get it over. Diane said he was a friend of her aunt's, and I just thought, perhaps I should have come yesterday? You'd have had to make it early. He's been gone since yesterday morning. So Vince Barron was out of town when Jenny was lured away. He could have been the gruff voice on the telephone, but Tony would have known if it was a long-distance call. And if he had nothing to do with Jenny's disappearance, he wouldn't be involved in the death of Mr. Waddy, either. What is your business with Mr. Barron? Sister Simon thinks, and so do I, that all this trouble about Danny has come out of something that happened twenty years ago, and since Mr. Barron was a friend of hers, he may know whatever it was she was killed for, and so he may be in danger, too. It was an impulsive confidence. The moment she had finished, Lizette wondered whether she had been wise, but if the disclosure was startling, the secretary gave no indication. With a quick nod, she led the way back to the open door, stood aside for the girl to enter, and then, although the silence seemed to imply that they were alone in the building, she closed the door. "'Sit down,' she said. The room had most likely been one of the double parlors of the old home, for a wide archway had been filled in, with board and steel filing cabinets were ranged against it. On top of the cabinets were piled folders and papers of all kinds. More folders were stacked in a big square table. The desk behind which the woman seated herself was littered, but it was an orderly litter, and it occurred to Lizette that this was the office of the executive, rather than the other behind the darkened door. "'I'm Alice Armstrong,' the woman stated. 
I've been Mr. Barron's secretary for eighteen years. Now what's this about him being in danger? We don't really know. The hunting party is the only... What hunting party? When Diane's father was killed, Jim MacArthur, he and his brother Steve and Henry Waddy were deer hunting. It was an accident. Steve disappeared afterward. And where does Danny Greer come in? She was the sister to Jim's wife, Elizabeth. Then when Elizabeth died in the fire, only a short time later, Danny took the baby, Diane, to raise her. Lizette paused. Miss Armstrong was listening intently, her gaze on a glass bubble paperweight containing two cows in the barnyard. Danny was a nun at the time of the fire, the girl continued. She hadn't taken her final vows. She left in order to care for Diane. So that's why he gave them the house, Miss Armstrong said. Lizette caught her breath. The Octagon House? You mean Mr. Barron gave it to the sisters when Danny left? When she entered, twenty-two years ago. The secretary turned the paperweight upside down, then righted it and watched the snow fall around the cows. I found the record of it. I wondered why. He's not a specially charitable man. He wanted to think he provided a home for her, I suppose. But why? You know the date today, August 7th? Every year on this day he'd go to visit her. Don't ask me why, because I don't know. Or do I? You mean he was in love with her? Why not? From what I've heard of Mr. Barron, he wouldn't fall in love with anybody. Nobody ever knows the why of loving someone, do they? Lizette fastened her gaze again on the cows. Was it possible that Miss Armstrong was in love with her boss? And Barron wouldn't even suspect it. He was too busy chasing after a woman who was so tangled up in something or other that she got herself murdered. He never mentioned Danny Greer to me, naturally, the secretary added. It's not a thing you'd discuss with somebody like him, or me. Then how did you know about her? A cousin of mine up in Beechwood Falls lived with Danny for a while after Diane left to go to school, Nettie Julian. She's dead now. She picked up a pencil and drew a large X through the date on the calendar. Who is this nun you mentioned? Sister Simon, my supervisor. Is she doing some sleuthing on her own? Not exactly, but Chief Wakeley doesn't feel that this business of the hunting accident has anything to do with Danny and Mr. Waddy, and Sister Simon does, and since Mr. Barron was a friend of Danny's. The secretary shoved away the calendar and rose. I wouldn't worry about Mr. Barron. He can take care of himself. As for his friendship with Danny, well, he's paying her funeral expenses. Maybe if I stick with him long enough, he'll do the same for me. Who knows? Lizette, letting herself out into the hot sunshine, thought hastily back over all the woman had told her. It wasn't evidence, exactly. The only real fact that emerged was the gift of the octagon house to the sisters. But Baron, even in those days, was a very rich man, and the timing of Danny's entrance into the convent might have been coincidence. According to Miss Armstrong, and Diane also, he visited Danny through the years, but it might not have been because he loved her. He could have been threatening her, too. Down on the sidewalk, Lizette looked back up at the square, unlovely house. Baron was a good name for the man. That was what his life had been. The Miss Armstrongs must be Baron, too. I wonder, Lizette thought, I wonder why I didn't mention Jenny to her. 
Quickly she turned away and hurried along the tree-shaded street. Over on Main Street, Lizette turned left along the high walk which topped the retaining wall. People hung as usual against the railing, looking down on the park. She glanced toward the docks. The triton was out. Ted would be declaiming the wonders of Stand Rock about now. On the portico of the Nickelodeon Palace, the mind-reader sat before his purple tent. He wore the garb of his profession, the white satin shirt and paisley vest badly in need of cleaning, the orange turban dark with perspiration around the edges. The newspaper he held before him was a rather incongruous note. He should be gazing into a crystal ball, but he was not reading the newspaper, Lizette noted. He was looking past it, down at her. She stopped. The man's eyes returned instantly to his paper. Merlin, the mind-reader, had been present during that crucial time when Danny had been so frightened down on the waterfront, and his client, Jenny, would certainly be known to him if he cared to remember her. Rising, he stooped to pick up the stool on which he had been seated. "'Just a moment, please,' Lizette said impulsively, and mounted the steps. The mind-reader paused, turning to her, his expression blank. I wonder if you'd remember the woman who was murdered, Danny Greer. You were there that night, by the river. He shook his head, the gold hoops dangling against his fat jowls. I am seldom anywhere but here. Oh, but I saw you. You were on the stairs, and she was looking at the mud figures. I go many times to the park. Lizette hesitated, wondering if she should remark the contradiction. You must remember Danny. She was so pathetic, lugging her suitcase, and frightened. Someone down there frightened her. I thought you might know who it was. Merlin's eyes went to the stool he was folding. When an edge of canvas caught in the joint, he extracted it carefully. A mind-reader does not glance over a crowd and read everyone's thoughts. But surely you remember her. I see hundreds of people in a day. Lizette was exasperated. He was not answering her questions at all neither was he lying. She would try one more shot in the dark. Then you wouldn't remember my buddy, either, Jenny Johnson. She's come to you a couple of times this summer to have her palm read, but there's nothing remarkable about her. She's just Jenny. Then why do you mention her? Because she's missing. Lizette thought later that she must have imagined the slight flare of alarm that crossed the man's face. He did not bother to reply but it was with almost too much nonchalance that he proceeded into his tent. The first section was wide open, furnished with a dirty piece of carpet, a table holding a crystal ball, and two chairs. Inside he raised another flap into an inner compartment, and Lizette had a glimmer of an unmade cot. Slowly she went on down the long hill. The bridge had been built in the days of carriage traffic, and the two lines of cars, meeting one another, nearly touched fenders. The sidewalk was too narrow for comfort. When the ambulance siren began to wail up on Main Street, Lizette hugged the rail. Even the ambulance could not pass swiftly here, and she had a good look into it as it went by. There was a sheeted figure on the stretcher, and a white-coated attendant seated beside it. On the second seat was the woman Lizette had seen only minutes ago, Miss Alice Armstrong, who knew nothing of the whereabouts of her boss, which was strange for the man on the stretcher could be none other than Vince Barron. End of chapter 11